Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And well, welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us for a wonderful Women's World Cup Wednesday on the program. Yay, England beating World Cup co-host Australia by a score of three to one. Sorry, Australia. The Lionesses will take on Spain in the World Cup finals now this weekend. We have a full report just ahead. But in the meantime, too, lots of other stories for us to kick around, including Trump's red card. The former U.S. president has nine days to turn himself in after his fourth criminal indictment, this time in the U.S. state of Georgia. Trump and 18 other defendants charged with 41 counts of plotting to overturn the 2020 elections. The very latest on that ahead, too. And leaving the pitch, China stops reporting worsening youth unemployment data as its economic woes intensify. Beijing today calling the recovery, quote, torturous. Also tortured, China's embattled property developer, Country Garden, warning again over its ability to make bond payments. The country's central bank cutting interest rates unexpectedly this week also. And on Wall Street, players beginning to take the field. The Bulls hoping to score some goals after across-the-board losses of over 1% in the previous session. As you can see, some red arrows there showing European stocks also relatively mixed. Global investors suffering mid-August angst, I think, amid concerns of further U.S. bank ratings downgrades, interest rate uncertainty, and as mentioned, fears over China's economic weakness. And I think you can see that portrayed in the Asia session too. Japanese stocks falling below that 3,200 mark for the first time in a month. And a lot to get to, as always, this hour. But first, the latest on the wildfire emergency in Hawaii. At least 106 people are now known to have died in the devastating wildfires in Maui. Authorities say that number is expected to rise. Search crews continue to sift through debris. Even now, only a third of the fire zone has even been searched. The governor of Hawaii saying identifying those lost could take weeks. Families of the missing have been asked now to provide DNA samples. Mike Valerio is on Maui with the very latest for us once again. Mike, a devastating wait now for the friends and families of those potentially missing. Also questions being asked of how they perhaps could have been better protected. Well, you know, Julia, I think that we're entering a painful chapter where so many questions are being asked of what possibly could have been done. And there are so many tributaries that are being you know, drawn up to answer that. First and foremost, with the famous siren system of alerting people to tsunamis, hurricanes, uh, alerts 
uh, that have even been used for tropical storms once or twice in the past. People are wondering why nothing was done to alert the people when there were no cell phones that were working, when televisions weren't working either, why nobody thought to ring, sound the alarms across Maui. And that hasn't been directly answered. The governor of Hawaii spoke to our Caitlin Collins late last night, and he said that some perhaps weren't working, but it wasn't a definitive answer. He said that his attorney general uh, was going to be investigating for the next few months. But then we also come to the matter of the utility company, Hawaiian Electric, and the matter of security video or uh, uh, doorbell camera video capturing these power lines that fell down during the course of this extreme wind event with wind speeds reaching up to 130 kilometers an hour and these live wires sparking the dry grass because we're in the middle of a drought here in Maui. So people asking if high winds were in the forecast, why weren't these electric wires de-energized if the utility knew that this could be a possibility. And frankly, it's emerged that the utility did not even have the uh, strategy of being able to turn off its electric wires within its playbook at all. Unlike California, which has that within its uh, playbook of things to do when there are high winds, especially in wildfire season in the fall in the Golden State. So I think that those are the two biggest avenues that people are looking at in terms of what could have been done to save lives. And when those answers emerge, Julia, and people begin to be held accountable, this island, which is so accustomed to uh, joy and blooming with life, I think it'll be a side of the island that we have not seen before in terms of a quiet rage because this disaster was so outside the realm of possibility and has forever changed Maui as we know it, Julia. Mm. Mike Valeria there, thank you. Mistreatment and racism. North Korea claims U.S. Army Private Travis King entered their territory last month due to discrimination he faced in the U.S. military. It's the first acknowledgement from Pyongyang that the 23-year-old soldier is in custody there. Paula Hancocks joins us now. Paula, I think there was an automatic assumption when these events happened that they would be leveraged in some way by North Korea. What more are they saying, if anything? Well, Julia, it is obviously a propaganda coup for the North Koreans. And it is very important that what we talk about today is uh, it's noted that it's from the North Korean uh, narrative. We're not hearing this directly from Travis King at this point. Uh, but Pyongyang is very clear about why the U.S. soldier fled across the border. North Korea claims racism in the U.S. military was the reason U.S. private Travis King crossed into its territory, adding he was seeking refuge in North Korea or a third country. One month ago, King ran across the military demarcation line during a civilian tour of the demilitarized zone. Nothing had been heard from him since. Pyongyang, finally breaking its silence on the incident, claims King confessed that he, quote, harboured ill feeling against inhuman maltreatment and racial discrimination within the U.S. Army. A U.S. defence official said they could not verify King's alleged comments and the focus remains on bringing him home safely. King ran across the border at the Joint Security Area, a heavily guarded area. U.S. and South Korean soldiers were unable to stop him. Pyongyang claims King is, quote, disillusioned at the unequal American society. There are no direct statements from King or details of his whereabouts or condition. King had faced assault charges in South Korea, serving around 50 days in a detention facility. 
The army says he would have faced further charges if he had returned to the US as planned. The day before he crossed into North Korea, King was taken to Incheon Airport by a military escort, but did not board the plane, claiming a lost passport to airport officials who escorted him back to departures. Get my son home. King's mother, through a family spokesperson, is asking Pyongyang to treat her son, quote, humanely, asking for a phone call with him. Contact Pyongyang has not allowed with previous US detainees. King's family has told CNN they feel helpless. Or let me go get him, because I'm his big sister at this point. Or let me go get him, because I'm his uncle. Now, you always have to look at the timing of any kind of North Korean announcement. And this one's interesting because the U.S. and others are pushing for a U.N. Security Council hearing and meeting on uh, human rights abuses in North Korea. They want it to start tomorrow on Thursday. It will be the first time in about six years such a meeting was held. Uh, so some say it is interesting that it is just the day before uh, that North Korea is pointing out they have a U.S. soldier uh, criticizing the U.S. Army of uh, of, alle- of alleged uh, racism. So certainly there is a propaganda element to this. And until we hear really from Travis King himself, it's difficult to know exactly why he decided to make that run across the border. Julia? Mm, but to your point, interesting timing indeed. Paula Hancocks, thank you. To Ukraine now, where the government is saying its forces have liberated another village in the Donetsk region after several unsuccessful attempts by Russia to gain control. Elsewhere, Russian drones have targeted a port in the Odessa region. You're actually looking at damage to warehouses and granaries. It comes as a cargo ship left Odessa for the first time since Russia abandoned the UN-brokered grain export deal last month. And we're also learning more about last month's attack on the bridge connecting Russia to Crimea. New footage shows the moment an experimental sea drone detonated beneath the bridge. Nick Peyton Walsh has this exclusive report. It's become the most beleaguered symbol of Russian occupation. This weekend, Moscow saying this incident was just a smokescreen, foiling a Ukrainian attack on the $4 billion Kerch Bridge. The link between Russia and occupied Crimea that Putin seems to dote on. Now CNN has obtained exclusive footage heralding a new way of warfare of another earlier devastating Ukrainian seaborne drone strike there in July from the Ukrainian security services, the SBU, who say they did it and more will follow. This is exactly what the drone pilots saw. Thermal imagery, the water rippling as up to a tonne of explosive approaches the bridge. The feed then obviously went dead as it hit the concrete. Russian officials said two civilians died in the attack. Cameras on the bridge captured the first blast on the road section. The cursor shows the drone moving in. And another on the railway tracks at about the same time. Ukraine has been coy, some officials saying these huge blasts are from, quote, unidentified floating objects. But no longer... The head of the Ukrainian security services told CNN this is just the start. Sea surface drones are a unique invention of the security service of Ukraine. None of the private companies are involved. Using these drones, we have recently conducted successful hits of the Crimean Bridge, a big assault ship Olengorsky Gorniak, and SIG tanker. 
This another Ukrainian drone attack on the Russian amphibious assault boat, the Oronegorsky Gornyak, on which Ukrainian officials said 100 personnel were on board. It was a remarkable feat carried out by a growing fleet of what they call the Sea Babies. Hundreds of miles away from Ukrainian bases and right in Russia's coastal heartland, it put the Black Sea's east suddenly at risk. These drones are produced at an underground production facility in Ukraine. We are working on a number of new, interesting operations, including in the Black Sea waters. I promise you, it will be exciting, especially for our enemies. Ukraine's ingenuity, again and again, toppling the lumbering Russian Goliath. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Dnipro, Ukraine. And just into CNN, President Joe Biden will travel to Hawaii to see the devastation on Maui next Monday. Biden will be joined by the First Lady and the White House says they will survey the damage and meet with first responders. In the meantime, former U.S. President Donald Trump has until August 25th to turn himself in after his indictment Monday in the state of Georgia. Trump has not publicly said when he intends to surrender and enter his plea on 13 criminal counts. He was charged with attempting to overturn his 2020 presidential election defeat, along with 18 other defendants. Nick Valencia joins us now. Nick, the fourth indictment now in a row, but there's clear crossover between the charges in each of these cases. Do we have a sense of the timing, both of his um, surrender in Georgia and, of course, the timing beyond that? Yeah, four indictments in four months and a lot of overlap between this case here in Georgia and the January 6th case in D.C. As far as the details and what's next, we do expect Donald Trump to turn himself in along with the 18 co-defendants. And according to the Fulton County Sheriff, who's in charge of that process, he's going to treat Donald Trump and the 18 co-defendants uh, like he would anyone else who's been indicted here in Fulton County, which means that they're going to have to go through the infamous Fulton County Jail. It's the same jail where earlier this year a man being held on pretrial detention was allegedly eaten alive by bedbugs. Even the sheriff here in Fulton County, Pat Labatt, has spoken publicly about the deteriorating conditions there in the facility. And earlier today, I did reach out to the Fulton County Sheriff's Office, who told me that none of the defendants so far have turned themselves in. Meanwhile, we are learning more about the potential defense strategies for Trump and his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Meadows and his legal team filing a formal petition to try to get the venue change from state court to federal court, arguing that anyone charged with crimes that they allegedly committed while working as a federal official should be able to have their criminal proceedings heard in a federal court. And here's what they're saying in part of that petition here, saying, quote, nothing Mr. Meadows is alleged in the indictment to have done is criminal per se, arranging Oval Office meetings, contacting state officials on the president's behalf, visiting a state government building and setting up a phone call for the president. One would expect a chief of staff to the president of the United States to do these sorts of things. Mark Meadows, of course, facing two counts in this indictment, one count for racketeering, another the violation of a public oath of office. He says he's going to find, file a longer formal complaint at a later date. But meanwhile, right now, uh, his petition is in the hands of a U.S. district judge here in Georgia. Julia. Nick, great to have you. Nick Valencia there. Okay, coming up here on First Move, some potential fiction or not from the future. Watch our news bulletin from 2035 and how the world might change through artificial intelligence. Two of the world's biggest thinkers in technology and geopolitics join with their view and vision of a new world order. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Julia Chasley, and here are your hypothetical headlines for August 16th, 2035. AI systems are everywhere. They govern hospitals, run airlines, and battle each other in the courtroom. The good news is productivity levels have spiked to unprecedented levels, and businesses have scaled up at blistering speeds. Humans are enjoying a new sense of well-being with new cures, products, and innovations released every single day. However, The world is also more unpredictable and fragile as terrorists use cyber weapons to advance their goals and white-collar workers are losing their jobs en masse. That's just one vision of the future drawn up by our next guests. Ian Bremmer, president, founder of Eurasia Group and G-Zero Media, and Mustafa Suleiman, CEO and co-founder of Inflection AI. Their op-ed published today in Foreign Affairs is called The AI Paradox and warns, among other things, that some tech giants will be more powerful than nation states one day, and a patchwork approach to regulation will neither be sufficient nor swift and flexible enough. In a nutshell, they say we need global bodies to help address this challenge. Bremer is fearful of a US-China arms race with other nations left behind. And Suleiman warns of the consequences of mass unemployment. And I'm glad to say both of those gentlemen join me now. Welcome to the show. I want to start with you, Ian. What makes this article to me and is very clear is that AIs are at the intersection of technology, health, society, geopolitics and military advances in a way that we've simply never seen before. And if we want to ensure an innovative but safe path forward, it requires a global conversation, cooperation. Yes, I mean, technology companies have been dominant in the virtual space and the digital space for decades now. It's just that the power of the digital space in national security or in society uh, or in the global economy has been limited. With the explosive gains of artificial intelligence, particularly over the course of the last couple of years, that is no longer the case. In other words, suddenly, 
these technology companies operating as digital sovereigns are making decisions that will have impact over the future structure of the global order. And if you want to govern it, that means that the institutions we create are going to need to be inclusive, that the governments will need to work directly with technology companies as actors to determine what kind of rules and regulations we have. This is very different from the kind of lobbying that we've seen over the past decades, the private sector trying to capture the public sector, but clearly being subservient to it. Here's a very, very different kettle fish. Yeah, this is moving at a far greater speeds than anything we've seen before. Um, Mustafa, to Ian's point, um, you've been an integral part of the private sector development and the explosive acceleration that we've seen in AIs in, in recent years. I believe you've also seen President Biden a couple of times in the last three months. So there's two things there. Do you think the government, be it the US government or more, understand the tidal wave of innovation for good and bad that's coming? And do you think the private sector, to Ian's point, understand the responsibility that they have today and will hold in the future? You know, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, I think President Biden and the White House are actually moving very fast here. I mean, a bunch of people have said that actually they're moving in at an unprecedented rate. And I'd say they have a reasonably good understanding. I mean, now that everybody in the world has sort of seen the incredible potential upside and power of these models, these large language models over the last six to 12 months. I think everybody can imagine what that might look like if that trajectory of improvement continues for the next 10 or 15 years. And so I'm definitely seeing a a really sharp focus on it. I do think that AI companies uh, are also very much focused on it. And I think for the first time in the invention of a technology, taking the precautionary principle Um, That is thinking ahead of time what the potential downsides might be, talking about them vocally and publicly and trying to actively mitigate them. Yeah, the conversation is being had, which is important. But Ian, do you buy that? Because even if the United States, as one example, is thinking about this and moving at an unprecedented rate, past history suggests, um, even with some of the will in the world, um, nothing actually happens. Social media is a great example of this. Do you feel like this time around it can and will be different simply because it needs to be? Uh, well, it does need to be, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. Uh, and as much as, look, uh, there are no people out there, no leaders, global leaders that were talking about this issue in a serious way a year ago, and now they all are. So it's true, Mustafa's absolutely right, that the US government, the EU government, the Chinese government, they're all suddenly focusing in unprecedented speed but they are behind the curve. The the companies have been moving at unprecedented speed for years now. They are better resourced. They have the expertise and they have control. So the governments are playing catch up. And this matters immensely for national security for these countries, not to mention the social fabric of democracies, not to mention the sustainability of economic development. Um, so the fact that they're now focused does not mean that they're going to be successful. Um, and it also doesn't mean they know what to do. Usually when we have really difficult policy problems like immigration, for example, or abortion issues, or you know how to run a successful election, people know, political leaders know what the right answer is. They just don't have the political courage and capital and will to do it. In this case, I actually do believe, along with Mustafa, that the political will is there. 
It's just that they don't know what to do. And that's that's why you have a political scientist and a technologist here working together to try to lay out some principles and a roadmap. Yeah, let's talk about some of those principles because this is important. And I think at the heart of this is understanding what we're talking about when we're defining what AIs are and establishing the facts from fiction and hype. Um, Mustafa, I don't want to to take uh, a sort of angle that looks at the hype around this because I think there is enough of that. But we do have to understand, I think, the darkest sides of the dark side of AI in order to be able to craft and shape regulation appropriately and make it flexible enough to adjust to the technologies it develops. What's your sense of that? Look, I think you have to start from first principles. Just consider for a minute that the quest of artificial intelligence over many decades now has been to try to take what makes us special as a species, our ability to plan, imagine, be creative, and inventive and turn that into an algorithmic construct that we can reproduce, scale up, scale up, paralyze. And that's kind of an incredible thought. The very thing that has produced everything in the world around us, everywhere you look in your line of sight at this very moment, every object is almost likely going to have been manufactured, created, invented, or at least in some way affected by this capability, this intelligence. And so the prospect of turning that into something that we can copy and reproduce and anybody can use to make them smarter as a research assistant, as a tutor, everybody is going to get access to the very best quality medicine, legal advice, financial advice over the next 10 to 15 years. Just as today, billions of people have access to the same super high quality smartphones and laptops. We're on the same trajectory of exponential cost reductions and things getting incredibly easy to use. And on the face of it, that's an incredible story for productivity. It really is going to be a Cambrian explosion of new value and new inventions at a time when we need it most, given everything that's happening with our climate crisis. But of course, some people may choose to use that for activities that end up destabilizing and disrupting the nation state system. And that's, I think, really the primary threat here. We have to think about the consequences of a proliferation of power. And so in the proposals that we uh, have made, Ian and I, we've really tried to focus on what it looks like for significant power centers to exist outside of the nation state system and what we can do about it. Yeah, I mean, it's also so broad reaching as well. If you're talking about that proliferation risk, you're putting this into the hands of people that will be able to very quickly have this on their smartphones to use. And then we're talking malware, viruses, uh, lethal drones, election interference, to your point. And and everybody effectively has the power beyond individuals and, and nation states. In part of what you talk about here is this zero sum game between the United States and China. And I don't think we can talk about some kind of global body. And you discuss this as a sort of geopolitical stability board of some sort that's required to at least discuss this and understand the risks without having the United States and China that we know are already at loggerheads in terms of of technology. And China certainly missed the Industrial Revolution. They're not going to try and miss this in technological revolution or specifically this one. How do you bring those two powers together and help them understand that they need to work together? Of course, right now, uh, both the opportunities and the dangers are largely in the hands of a few companies that are based in the United States and China. That is going to change, as Mustafa just suggested, very radically. There will be an explosive proliferation of these technologies in the hands of literally hundreds of millions of citizens within a matter of a few years. 
Um, and that means that suddenly the United States and China aren't just dealing with an arms race between the two of them, but they're focused as the most powerful countries in the world that want to maintain the safety and the stability of the existing system. And in this regard, it's very important. The US and China, it's not North Korea, it's not a terrorist organization, it's not Russia. These are countries that ultimately, even though they don't trust each other, do want to ensure that the system continues to work. And that's why Mustafa and I talk about techno-prudentialism. It's the AI equivalent of what we already do in the financial system, macro-prudentialism, that the Americans, the Chinese, the Europeans, they're all members of the IMF. They're all members um, of the Financial Stability Board, of the Bank of International Settlements, and they all try to identify and mitigate risks to global stability without choking off financial innovation and the, the functioning of our global marketplace. That's what needs to happen in artificial intelligence. And I was heartened, I wouldn't say I'm yet optimistic, but heartened that Tony Blinken just in the past hours has said that yes, that the Chinese do recognize that there needs to be a conversation on AI between the two countries, that the Chinese at the Security Council just a month ago were, were, were pr productively uh, participating in, in the first conversation in the Security Council, the AI, at a time when the Russians, who aren't exactly a power here, were saying this should not be discussed at this body. I, I do believe that as the risks become more apparent, and they will in very short order, that the pressure on the U.S. and China to work together on this front is going to grow very dramatically. Mustafa, I have about a minute left. And um, very quickly, I do think there's asymmetric risks here. The, the private sector is going to continue to innovate no matter what. The money will still flow. The question is, can you innovate safely? Do you think the industry is ready for that? And are you as optimistic, cautiously optimistic, let's call it that, in Ian's case, that actually the big players, be they tech and countries, can come together on this? I am optimistic about this. I mean, I, I think that one other model that we have proposed that I think is super interesting is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as a basis for scientific fact-finding and evidence-based practice. And I think we've we've imagined uh, a possible body that is similar to this called the International Panel on AI. And this would be a science-led uh, body that was focused on audits, on red teaming, that is pressure testing these models to identify their weaknesses. And when one uh, company or uh, academic lab identifies a weakness, they should then share that with the other significant players in the body. Because, you know, we've, we've already seen some evidence of this. We already do that with the seven companies that have signed up to the voluntary commitments at the White House. And, you know, we think over time there'll be enough of a concern among many of the other significant governments that they'll want to participate in a regime like this, provided it is independent and science led. Yeah, it was a brilliant article, guys. Thank you so much for coming on to discuss it. And I know we'll continue the conversation. Um, Foreign Affairs, I'll tweet it out to you and I recommend our viewers read it. Ian Bremer and Mustafa Suleiman there. So thank you so much for your time, Great. both of you. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
Welcome back to First Move and a busy week already for business news. Russian interest rates going up, China's going down. Japan's GDP soaring 6%, exports regaining their crown. U.S. retailers reporting earnings, consumers still going to town and on Wall Street sentiment defined by a rather large frown. Stocks are mostly lower in early trade after Tuesday's across-the-board weakness. All the major averages in the red for August so far too. That's despite fresh signs of U.S. economic strength. Well, that's to the tune of it, of course, because of the risk of further rate hikes. A new read by the Atlanta Federal Reserve showing GDP on track to rise by a robust 5% annual rate this quarter. Then, of course, the big question for both consumers and investors, can the Fed pause rate hikes amid an apparent acceleration in growth and therefore perhaps inflation too? Big question. And from inflation to sheer elation and a little commiseration too. England defeating the co-hosts Australia to reach the final of the Women's World Cup for the first time. Yay! They'll take on Spain this weekend for the chance to be world champions. Amanda Davis joins us now on this. Amanda, yay! But we're not biased. The question is, can they win it? Uh, <laughs> let's just go straight Sorry. to the point, shall I we? Know. I mean, it, it does feel... It does feel such a treat, doesn't it? You know, just 12 months after celebrating that first piece of major silverware for the England's Lionesses at the European Championships to be here going further than they've ever been before at a Women's World Cup, booking their place in the in the final for the first time and deservedly so. You know, they say third time lucky, but that's really doing this England team a disservice after those two semi-final defeats. They absolutely deserved it. They were unified. They were hardworking, they were skillful, and they pulled those moments out of the bag when it mattered. That goal from Ella Toon, another from Lauren Hemp, and then Alessia Russo once again uh, making the difference. You really do have to feel for Australia's Matilda. So this is a group of women, a team that have really galvanised the nation, not only behind them, but behind women's football more than any previous generations. And it will very much feel like a painful defeat. But I hope in time they will sit back and reflect on what they've done, particularly somebody like Sam Kerr, who was the face of not only this Australian team, but the Women's World Cup for so long in the build-up. Still, without doubt, one of the best players players of a generation, a goal-scoring machine. She made her first start. At times, she looked like she was single-handedly trying to drag her team and this nation into the final. She did score that goal, and at, at certain points, it looked like it, it might make the difference. But ultimately, it is uh, the end of the dream for the hosts, the Matildas. They do have that third-place playoff to come on Saturday, but it is England's Lionesses uh, into the decider for the first time up against another first-time World Cup finalists in Spain. They've made the journey from Auckland in New Zealand here to Sydney uh, a few hours ago. They very much want to get their hands on the trophy. They've got motivation and inspiration of their own, but it's two teams who know each other very, very well. Two of England's star players, Lucy Bronze and Kira Walsh, play uh, for Barcelona in Spain with a core of that Spanish team. But yeah, we've got a long a long time to talk about we'll that, see. Uh, Julia, and we've got <laughs> yes. plenty of time to get excited. <laughs> yes, looking and sounding fabulous there, Amanda. Thank you. At, what is it, 20 minutes to tomorrow. We appreciate you. Thank you. 
And from the lionesses to the land of the Atlas Lions, we're now heading to Morocco, which is hosting the IMF's annual meetings later this year. The group's managing director calls the Morocco gathering a crucial juncture when it comes to global trade and relations. Our Eleni Jokos spoke to her as part of our series, Connecting Africa. So I've got a very important question. You have plans to host the annual meetings in October in Marrakesh. It's the first time in 50 years in Africa, first time in 20 years in the Middle East. So why is it taking you so long to come back? I'm so glad we are coming back. And uh, I cannot praise enough Morocco as the host for the annual meetings. Morocco is a crossroad between Africa, the Middle East, Europe, not only of goods, but also of ideas. It is a country with very rich history, culture, traditions, and very dynamic economy. So when we go to Marrakesh, that spirit of youthful, dynamic country is going to penetrate across the meetings. You're bringing together different worlds, right? And that's the aim. I was looking at the economic vulnerabilities on the continent, and according to the IMF report, I mean, the inflation levels and the public debt that we're seeing in Africa has not been seen in many decades. Does this worry you in terms of the trajectory and what you're going to try and achieve during your annual meetings? Uh, Of course, we are very concerned about the um, financial squeeze on low-income countries. It comes from the fiscal space evaporating as a result of the impact of COVID. It comes from high level of debt and also high interest rates that make debt service some more expensive. We go to Morocco, our most important short-term priority globally is to bring inflation down so we can see interest rates going down. And why is that so critical? Growth needs to pick up. With regards to the continental free trade area, are you feeling optimistic that Africa can pull this off? Well, well, there is some movement. And there is also advancement in um, uh, regional uh, context. In other words, the continent uh, also has its own regional agreements, and there we see more traction where there is strong leadership. Eleni, it always boils down to this. When there is will, there is way. Uh, Why am I optimistic uh, about Africa? Because of Mandela. Impossible until it is done. Fantastic continent, smart, dynamic people. They are those that would define so much this century, and I wish everybody on the continent all the success and, yes, move the will to make the way. And that's it for the show. Marketplace Asia is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.